All right, welcome to the Hump Day Exchange. My name is Scott Henderson, and I am your host for the evening. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Sandbox Communities. It's a private company helping research parks and innovation districts across the country create and nurture collaborative communities. We are recording tonight from the home of Sandbox ATL, also known as The Garage. Sandbox ATL is a membership club for TechSquare that provides its members with access to a collaborative workspace and, and in engaging events both which are on display here tonight. Uh, the Garage is a 9,000 square foot event venue built for breakthroughs. We like to say it's a smart space in a smart place. You can learn more at sandboxatl.com and bookthegarage.com. So Hump Day Exchange is the monthly social gathering of the TechSquare community, and we explore a different topic each month from three different perspectives. Uh, this is presented in partnership with ATDC and Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business, along with our other strategic partner, AT&T Foundry. You can find last month's conversation, uh, which was about smart cities, at TechSquareATL.com, alongside other stories about the breakthrough talent, breakthrough ideas, and breakthrough companies found here at TechSquare, the heart of Atlanta's tech scene. Tonight, our topic is Your Robot Overlords, and we're going to explore the intersection of robotics and artificial intelligence. We have three experts from these fields here tonight to help us figure this out, and uh, here's how it's going to go. I'm going to invite each guest into the hot seat right across from me for a one-on-one -on -one conversation to really focus in on their perspective. Once all three are through the hot seat, we'll gather them around for a roundtable conversation. Uh, and then we'll finish with a town hall style Q&A with you, our live audience, to be able to come up and ask a question of them. Heckling is encouraged, uh, jeering and cheering also. So please let the uh, folks listening at home know that there are people sitting here uh, questioning their, their motives and why did they come out tonight. So a uh, little round of applause for our, everyone who came out tonight. Make sure that we have a real live audience. There we go. So let me, let me frame the topic. I mean, um, it seems like tools and technology really drive uh, our success as a, as a species. And um, I, I'm a big fan of Kevin Kelly and his writing. Uh, one of the founders of Wired Magazine, uh, and just a, an amazing, I would call it, he's an interesting um, combination of, of hippie and uh, futurist and uh, an optimist when it comes to technology. He's written um, a number of books, but two really stand out for tonight's conversation. One's uh, called What Technology Wants, um, and in that he puts out this, uh, this thesis that there's a new plant and animal kingdom called the technium, which is an outgrowth of the human species. Um, and uh, really explores that whole idea of how technology has become its own world and how it relates to us as a species. His newest book is called The Inevitable, uh, and it's about 10, I mean, 12 trends that are, are, are coming that uh, already are underway and are hitting in a big way. And in that, one of his main points is artificial intelligence as a, as a public utility. Um, the idea that uh, we're getting, we'll get to a point where artificial intelligence will be something that just like the power that that uh, puts these lights on and, and makes sure the uh, air conditioning is running, uh, is, we'll be able to tap into artificial intelligence just like that. Um, and I think about, you know, Watson beating, dominating Jeopardy, um, the DARPA robot challenge showing that the robots aren't yet ready to take over the world, but uh, they're almost out of toddler preschool. Um, I also watched for the first time uh, 2001 Space Odyssey and uh, HAL and that whole idea of the Terminator, the whole Terminator series. Anyone seen She or Ex Machina or iRobot? Right? All of those things, all those genres of science fiction. And tonight I want to kind of explore with our guests and with you, our audience here, what's science fiction and what's science fact? Um, and particularly, I mean, I come from the great state of Nebraska. Um, uh, it's just been a week in Omaha. And uh, the Industrial Revolution really changed the landscape when it came to the agricultural communities, the rural communities, and saw great decline, but also opened up new territories for people, freeing people up from the drudgeries that we had. Uh, and so for tonight, I want to explore what's coming our way, how fast, how slow, and what is the unexpected expectedness, and what's the expected unexpectedness. So if you can understand that last question, uh, you win a prize. So first up in the hot seat, I'm going to welcome Barry Clark our Vice President of Research and Development for Software Automation. A little round of applause for this guy. You can pull your uh, microphone out there and you can hold it or you can, whatever you want, folk singer style, you can do it however. I'm told if you put it like this, it's gonna work better. All right, so um, you are with Software Automation. Um, you, you came from the University of Notre Dame and Ohio State, uh, your academic career, right? We're not gonna, 
I'm sorry, the Ohio State University. Um, uh, and you, right now, software automation is, is building up robotic sewing machines uh, that can eliminate sweatshops and, and really um, help um, achieve greater efficiencies when it comes to that manufacturing process. But you also have a, an expertise in, in walking robotics. Which That's right. Uh, my PhD research was in optimal walking uh, and human robots. And the idea is that um, a lot of people try some basic techniques for getting uh, robots to walk, but uh, we in my lab operate under the hypothesis that um, humans want to be uh, energetically efficient, right? We want to get um, from point A to point B in a way that conserves energy, and we have um, reasons kind of historically, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, why we would want to do that, um, where we don't know necessarily when our next meal is going to come. Um, and so we really want to walk in a way that conserves energy. Um, and so some of the work done in my lab um, shows that very basic walking gates can actually be predicted um, through the minimization of metabolic costs. So basically minimizing the energy usage uh, to move forward. So walking robotics, as we were talking uh, a couple months ago, is it, it's complex, right? It's a highly complex engineering problem. That's right. Simplified walking models have uh, over 26 muscles just in um, the lower half of the human, um, and those are simplified. Um, and that's also just in a, a planar model. So when you're just considering going forward, you, you don't worry about side to side motion. So you, you showed me the video of the DARPA challenge and how uh, that's right. know, these robots just were falling all over the place. Uh, what, what does that uh, underscore? What, are the, what did the DARPA challenge underscore in terms of when it comes to robotics and specifically walking? Uh, so I think the w one thing that was really interesting um, that I heard someone say is that it underscored the unknown knowns. Um, so what happens, um, for better or for worse, is people who have robots learn their robots really, really well, um, and they get their robots to work reasonably well. Um, and the problem with the, part of the problem with the DARPA Robotics Challenge is even the robots that could do those tasks, the people who got them to do those tasks couldn't necessarily tell you how they got them um, to do those tasks. So there isn't an underlying mathematical understanding or scientific understanding of why we walk the way we do. And even our best attempts to make robots do the same thing are based more around kind of a feel um, and a, a quantitative understanding and not so much a qualitative, I'm sorry, a qualitative understanding, not so much a quantitative understanding of those robots. So you, you go from in the lab focusing on the highly complex walking uh, challenges that's there, and now you're, you're in, in, in the industry shop building out robotic sewing machines or sewing robots. What's, what, what are the challenges when it comes to a manufacturing process like sewing? Um, again, I, I think that it, it comes down to um, those unknown, unknown knowns. Um, so you have um, you know, the average um, commercial sewer um, you get one out of 10 people who are training to be a commercial sewer actually make it through. Um, and it takes them eight to nine months to actually get up to speed. And so what we're doing is we're using computer vision along with uh, you know, some machine learning algorithms to actually teach the machine how to sew better. Um, so what, you know, the manipulators that we build represent the sewer's hands. The vision represents their eyes. Uh, and what we're trying to do is more quickly replicate and teach those um, those robots how to sew in a, in a faster way um, with some sensing that really hasn't existed before in the uh, in the form of computer vision. So this this idea of focusing in on uh, a very specific commercial application, what are you guys learning uh, in, in terms of focusing on that specific challenge uh, that can be related to other manufacturing processes and, and, and other things that humans do? Uh, I think the, the most important thing is um, you know, the use of software, right? So a lot of things in sewing in particular were, have always been hard automated. Um, and that's, that's good and sometimes it works, but it really, um, it makes your machine very niche, niche, right? What do you, what do you mean by that hard, hard automated? Does that mean like mechanically built and is doing? Like that's right. So you, you use clamps, you use forms, um, you kind of uh, strictly enforce um, that the material stays the same throughout a process. Um, and that, that can work very well for certain processes, but the issue is that if I suddenly want to do something new, um, I have to change those forms. It takes money, it takes time, and it might take you know, several iterations to get it just right. Um, but if you focus on uh, being nimble, um, using new types of sensing like computer vision um, and better software algorithms, that's going to allow your machines to um, 
you know, grow with you over time. And if you get a new product in, you'll be able to make it immediately instead of having to kind of iterate um, on these forms and these molds. So what about the algorithms that you're just mentioning? What, 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 what is unique about them when it comes to a manufacturing or sewing, sewing processes? Um, it's how we use that feedback. Um, so the, the information that we get from the sensing, um, actually taking that into account to modify the trajectory as we move forward. Um, so you're not, you're not using a static process. The process is always changing. Um, and you might produce one or two goods that isn't very good, um, that don't you know, meet your standards. Um, but as you go forward in time, the goods are going to continue to improve. Um, and the machine itself is going to get a better understanding of how it should um, produce that particular item. And, and as, you, as you're uh, kind of seeing this thing play out, working, uh, getting the feedback, what, what are the reactions from, from industry players and the, the customers you guys are working with? I mean, was, is, were there is it like any technology where you have uh, early adopters and some skeptics and laggards? And what is it like when you see them see what you're doing? It, it runs the full gamut. I mean, um, the, the industry is so old school that a lot of what we see is skepticism. Um, but the people who have tried this before um, are really excited because it's a new approach. Uh, computer vision hasn't been used in this way before. A lot of people have had trouble with off-the-shelf computer vision systems. And so when they see what we're able to do with the technology they understand, um, they're really, really excited. Um, but sometimes they don't understand the technology, and so there, there is that skepticism. So computer vision also comes to play like in, in uh, autom uh, autonomous cars, right? Is that, That's is, right. What's yep. the difference when it comes to a manufacturing process? Um, in some ways, there's not a lot of difference, right? Um, but in some ways, we have it a little easier, right? Because um, there's a lot more variability in the natural world. Um, whereas we know what we're looking at. We know um, what skews we're going to be dealing with. And if something goes wrong, right, we know it's wrong because we know what we should be seeing. Uh, whereas an autonomous car, I heard there was a story where a Tesla ran underneath a semi-truck not too long ago uh, because the truck was white. Uh, and the Tesla wasn't really expecting to see kind of an all-white truck. Um, we don't have that problem, right? So if we if we don't see something um, that we should, or vice versa, we know something's wrong because we have kind of a preconceived notion of what we should be looking for. So, so what are what are really the best uses for robotics when it comes to uh, us as a species? Where, where should we and where are we seeing robotics be the have the greatest impact? Um, I think any, any task that has a lot of repetition, I think that's a, a really good application for robotics. Um, anything that can um, take kind of unskilled or unpleasant labor, right, and give us an ability to kind of uh, expand our minds and do things that are uh, more challenging, right, uh, allow us to kind of grow better, right, uh, and give you better opportunities. I think that's a, a really good application for robotics. And knowing what you know and what you you've seen you're seeing being built in the lab, but also in industry, uh, are you a, a technology optimist or a pessimist? Should we be afraid of the impending robotic uh, invasion or our overlords as they're coming, or or should we be like looking forward to the fact that we don't have the drudgery that we have to do? Um, I'm an optimist. I mean, I think that has more to do with me than the technology, but um, I think you know. I don't think improvements in lifestyle and improvements in technology can ever uh, be a negative. Uh, and I think as long as um, you know everyone focuses on doing the right thing, right, um, but continuing to improve technology at the same time, I think it only says positive things about where we're headed. So uh, if you had to put an over-under on how far we are away from Terminator, what would it be? Uh, I would think at least 75 years. Yeah. All right, great. Well, Barry and Clark, thank you for being on the hot seat. Appreciate you being in there. We'll get you back on the roundtable. So, round thank of applause you. for you. All right, next up, Dan McCarley, Technology Implementation Manager for Gozio. He brought his robot with him, so if you're listening along, uh, just pretend that you can see Gozio Health's robot right behind my shoulder. Um, Dan, uh, glad that you could be here. I know Gozio's... Um, uh, providing some patent pending wayfinding technologies to, to hospitals to help uh, them map out uh, 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 the spaces that they have. Um, what? Uh, but your your background is interesting. Is you're you're you, you're kind of a generalist, right? You you you're yeah. a self-taught generalist. What what has brought you to this this world of robotics? I mean, how did you get here? Just curiosity and yeah. Um so I'll caveat everything by saying I'm not necessarily an expert. Um, 
I don't have a degree. I don't really even have any formal um, training at all. I spent a little time in the Army at one point, but uh, that didn't really do much for me technology-wise. Um, everything I've learned uh, has been trial and error over the last 20 or so years of my life. Um, at an early age, I started, I got into hacking and things like that, and uh, really just so never started stopped. with software hacking. Is that what you're doing? Uh, yes. Um, at the same time, I was still into hardware too. I, I almost at the same time, I got into hardware. Uh, my dad was a satellite um, engineer, um, and so I'd do little things with him every once in a while. He really liked rockets, so we built trackers for the rockets and. Um, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I got into, from the hacking world, I got into the freaking with a PH um, world. Those for phones, right? Yes. Um, be able back, to do long distance dialing. Exactly, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so I built little phone taps and I go around the neighborhood tapping onto people's phones at their houses <laughs> and stuff. Um, I'm pretty so, sure the statute of limitations have expired on that. Yeah, probably, <laughs> probably, I hope so. Um, things like that, so. Um, that's that's how I got into this. Um, so you, you basically just you're you're just going in and, and trying things and, and creating things and, and seeing where it exactly. is and, and, and bringing bridging the the physical world with the software world. That, that is that is correct. Um, so t tell us a little bit about what, what is Gozio doing and uh, you know if you're doing about wayfinding, what what the heck do robots do? Right. So. Um, Really, uh, and I'll say this, the robot itself is not our product even. What we provide uh, for hospitals, and that's why it's Gozio Health, um, we provide uh, the ability to, um, for them to provide to customers and patients um, indoor navigation. Uh, the solution with the robot is that we needed a way to consistently move through the hallways in order to actually gather data in a consistent way. So when when I map a hallway, the robot moves at a level, uh, the same level at a consistent speed the entire time. And that's why how we came up with the entire uh, robot idea. Um, our CEO, Joshua Titus, um, initially when he came up with this technology, did all kinds of things. Uh, I've been told that he originally the original idea was him, you know, walking through a hallway with a cell phone and turning around in four different directions and every 30 feet or so, something like that. Um, so we needed this to make it much easier on us to do the mapping itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the repetitive <coughs> task that Barry was just talking about, right? Exactly. He said, hit on a lot of things I've learned. Being in the startup world in the last two years, um, uh, there's all kinds of, he pointed out a quite a few things I've learned over the years, all true. Now, when we were talking um, before the show, the, you, you were mentioning that you really think that Neuromancer series of books is, <laughs> is a really great uh, wor uh, view of the world. So mm -hmm. what, what are, what's the whole storyline there, and what, uh, why is it so relevant? Uh, I'm, I'm actually a little fuzzy. It's been a while since I've read that, actually. I can't even remember the author's name. Um, but it's a, it was a, I remember it being a great book. There's three in the series. Um, and the whole theme is this, uh, it's kind of a dystopian world type thing, and the main character is this uh, hacker-slash-mercenary guy who goes and does all these things works for different companies and things like that but the entire society at that point is a very heavily technology infused there's little implants they they you can just buy these chips off the black markets and you know plant them into your head and all kinds of little things like that uh, that very matrix like in a lot of ways um, and and I for me, that's what I see the future becoming. I, at least I would like to see it become that. Um, I really like um, biotechnology and things like that. Um, and, of course, I, I see the precursors now, um, but I, like you said, I, I don't see it happening for probably another 100, 200 years to really be accepted by everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, on a mass scale. Well, you've yeah, having having a background where you don't have a lot of credentials, like uh, with diplomas and certificates, but mm. doing what what you're just building and creating stuff and, and not you know, waiting. What what kind of 
advice would you give people who are listening at home if they're just young and looking to get into something? What What are the traits and trips uh, tips that you'd give them? Um, that's difficult. Uh, college is not a bad idea. It's not for everyone, I don't think. Um, I I may still I actually am in college at the moment. Um, not for any kind of technological degree. Um, but uh, I'd say, really, if you're able to learn that way, then do that. Um, I think it really comes down to how people learn. Some people learn much more easily in a classroom environment, having that structured you know, echelon of learning that exists there. But for me, I always, I was very stubborn and always liked to learn by messing up uh, a lot of the time. Uh, I wanted to have my hands on things and I didn't want to sit there and listen to somebody talk about things. I just get bored. Um, so advice for anybody that's trying to get into it. Um, I really think you have to put in the time and, and additionally, you have to like what you're doing. I got into this because I loved it. Um, I had an extremely passionate curiosity for all these things. I, I was taking apart things and just learning how things worked, and I loved that. Um, so you, you, I really think if you're not doing what you love, and this is go, goes for anywhere, any place in life, um, I, if you're not doing what you love, you, you should probably change what you're doing. Um, so that's probably the first thing. The second thing is actually, like I said, putting in the time and learning what you want to learn and becoming not necessarily an expert, but knowing a lot about it. Um, that is probably the second most important thing that's helped me get along. Uh, the third is really learning. I learned a lot about industry and networking and, and people in general, both in my experience in the military. And uh, I continued that once I came here down to uh, this ATDC environment. Um, and working with people is always, that's how you get things done in the end. Um, so being able to make those connections uh, with the right people at the right times is very important as well. Um, because people are what give you the access to the resources you need um, to continue growing and learning and building things. So what do, what's the um, greatest challenge of what you guys are doing with Gozio uh, when it comes to robotics and the, and the platform you're building for the wayfinding? Um, I think we've really solved most of the issues. Um, it's right now, uh, I think our biggest challenge will be meeting the demand of uh, our potential customers that we have. We're closing several deals at the moment, um, and we're going to be in a rush very soon to uh, or to have all the equipment. We have to build four more of these robots, and uh, um, just meeting that demand really will be the hardest thing, I think. And you've already given the over-under of somewhere between 100 and 200 years before we're at the ability for something mm -hmm. like Terminator. Some, uh, Not that we have to have Terminator, but that, you know, that could Well, be so that was my 100-200. That was for, you know, human-infused kind of biotechnology. Um, Terminator, I think that's even a higher level. I think that might take even a little longer. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm no expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, good fallback. Uh, Dan, you've made it through the hot seat. Appreciate you spending the time. Right. We'll Thank have you, you back in just a few minutes. All right, up next is Keith McGregor, who, uh, since I met him, has gotten his Ph.D. finished. Uh, he's a man of many titles, uh, including director of the Venture Lab here at Georgia Tech, an associate director of the GVU Center, professor of practice, and uh, has played a role in a variety of technology companies, uh, things from Lockheed, Apple, Yahoo, to a variety of different startups, including the South's first artificial intelligence startup founded in here in Atlanta, it's called AI Atlanta. And your um, degree, your PhD from the Georgia Tech College of Interactive Computing uh, had the specific research area in artificial intelligence with yep. a dissertation entitled Fractal, Fractal Reasoning. That's right. All of that correct? Did I get my facts that is, correct? That's all correct. That's, that's <laughs> quite the mouthful. A blah. And, and it was entirely intentional, I assure you, the, okay. whole, the whole of it. Well, the, so let's 
we've been de- delving into the robotic side here on the first right. two guests, but I, I want to get into the other part, the uh, other street on this intersection okay. about artificial intelligence. You bet. Um, is it going to be she, Hal? Is it going to be Ex Machina? Oh. Uh, which of these worlds that we've seen in the science fiction films it will be the one that you think is going to come out top? So, um, so when I when I when a new AI movie comes out, I'm pretty enthusiastic about it, you know, and I and I take to Twitter and kind of have at it and say this or that about it. Um, I think that of the ones that you just mentioned, I think her. Is probably closer. Her, not, not she. Not she. Yeah, I had the right pronoun. She-ra. No, her, her. Her. That's right. Her. Her. Sorry about um, that. I think, so I excited think, to talk to you. I think her is probably closer to how we all uh, get there or get to this sort of the next little bump along the way. Because um, if you think about if you think about things like Terminator or Ex Machina or um, anything that has an embodied AI, then you've got a lot of things you have to solve. You know, and you did a really great job of expressing sort of the incredible, amazing, dynamic problem that five-year-olds solve that those crazy DARPA robots can't get out of a car. And, and so I, I think that um, since we're all living in sort of a symbiotic relationship with these things we're toting around, we're, we've become meat puppets uh, for them anyway. And so I think that the her scenario is a little bit closer. Now, the end of her was a little bit weird. <laughs> but I, I have to also admit to everybody that I think the end of her was not only weird, but I also happen to think that the end of her was conservative in terms of how weird it's actually going to be. I think, I think that uh, if it had been sort of more like I think about it, it, might, it wouldn't have been filmable uh, to some degree. Hmm. So... Um what do you think of the term artificial intelligence? Is, is it really artificial? Well, okay. So we do, we do uh, in, my, in my research group, we, uh, we work on the fringy chunks of AI. Some people used to call it, there's like good old-fashioned AI, and then there was machine learning, and now there's more good old-fashioned AI. But we're just kind of in this weird little hanging out world of the fringe. And so the, the notion of it being artificial, it, we do take to, take to task because who's to say you know, what, what will be real? We're measuring these things against ourselves, I suppose. Uh, but should we measure them against a spider or a house cat or a, a slime mold or a, an octopus? Um, intelligence is, is hard to pin down. I mean, is, it, is that really, uh, you just were naming a number of different animal species. I mean, is that yeah. really going to be, we're going to have various species of artificial intelligence? That yeah, I think so. And, and, and um, I will say, you know, if you're, if you're thinking science fiction or looking for somebody to sort of read that will maybe be a little more expansive, Rudy Rucker is probably more, you know, in tune where I'm, I'm thinking things might go. But it's just, um, yeah, I think that just as there are different sorts of species of animals and then there have been um, times at which people have been, you know, foragers and farmers and industrialists, that this shift we're underway to not quite being technologists, but perhaps just travelers with technology. What do you mean uh, by that? Travelers with technology. So, for example, you know, um, think about how dependent you are on on the telephone you tote. Um, You you miss it when you don't have it. Uh, But if you were 10 years ago, you'd be okay. And you wouldn't necessarily be tethered that way. But now we're in this sort of uh, close approximation with these things. And I think that the, the interesting part of it is uh, it's starting to play out. Uh, seven days ago, nobody had Pokemon Go, and you guys were capturing, uh, I don't know what you captured here, right? Yeah. And so look at how quickly we go from something that you know, everybody scoffs at when it initially arrives to an immediate adoption. And so we're, these uptakes are happening faster and faster and faster. And so I think that all of all the movies and all the novels are uh, not getting it quite right because they always seem to miss the timing of things. And I think that the hard thing about the relationship we have with technology is that the window of our tolerance for, or our, our adaptation for the next thing is getting shorter and shorter and shorter as well. So I think at some point... We just become sort of the convenient carrier of technology and not necessarily, maybe not the beneficiary of it so much as just the, the minivan 
the human meat puppet minivan that carries around the technology that actually does things. Yeah, as Kevin Kelly's uh, new book uh, he mentions that we're all we're always in the beginners. We're, we're everyone's now a beginner because the technology is coming out so fast. Yeah, you, no one can really master that technology. That we always have to yeah. be learning that. So let me let me ask you this in terms of um, the the world of AI. Right. Um, what what is AI that we would know, that we would see in the wild today in the world around us? And then what are some things that are that are we'll see, we should see near near term? Well, you take for granted Google. I would say that's that's sort of first up. But search is AI, or search was AI. The cool or the bad thing about AI as a as a discipline is the moment we kind of can reduce it to an algorithm, we kind of kick it out of the field and go, you know, that's really not. That's just that's just code. That's not. AI and some sort of mystical sort of sense of it, uh, and that's a shame. But the things that you uh, would not really think about as AI, word processing and uh, games and uh, searching uh, and music playlists, all these things are just sort of the incidental uh, insertions of smarter software. And, and that's and that, and again the word. The words here are not the right words because there's so much packed into the word smart or intelligent or things like that. I just, I think um, they, they do things for us. They do things uh, that we might uh, anticipate or that we, that perhaps at some point they would think that we would want. I'm a, I'm a little bit more concerned about um, the building blocks or the Legos of, uh, of AI, if you will. Well, what do you mean by that in terms of your concerns? What's, what well, so, so for example, in the, in the research that I did, uh, it was all about how, how we see the world. And when we think about the world, we think about the objects that are in it or perhaps the geometry of the objects that are in it. And we've, we've invented this whole way of talking about uh, the squares and the doors and the carpets and the you-know-whats of the world. But if you think about the way we are as, a, uh, as animals, you know, we have, we have been... Talking to one or talking to one another and around one another and interacting with the world for a lot longer than we've had geometry and processed things, and so our minds have evolved in this this kind of complicated world, where there wasn't necessarily words for or concepts of cubes, or uh, you know uh, carpet, and so uh, one of the things that you do when you work in AI you try to go back sort of to the the most primitive sort of thing you can build and so in the work that I did um, I retreated in terms of computer vision to what what could I what could I say about the way the world is coming into you that has nothing to do with geometry perhaps color or repetition but other than that nothing else and so that's where the fractal stuff kind of came around mm. and it's funny um, you know, if you think about when you develop code, you have some end in, in sight. But when you develop research code, what you want to do is you have, you have this, it's almost like you want to solve a problem, and then the moment it starts to actually work, the very next thing you do is you abrade the software. You take something away, and then you ask yourself, well, does it still work? And you keep taking pieces away until it quits working, and then you stop and you look at yourself and go, well, why the hell did that happen? And so the whole notion of developing AI is about this abrading principle. You build it and it works and you pull it back until it doesn't work and then you go forward and it works again. You try to figure out what is that one little thing, that one little spark or that one little connection that causes it to click or flip or happen. And it's fascinating um, as a researcher to think about how many of those little bits we're made out of. Mm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, with with those thoughts in mind, um, I'd have to do the same over under with you. I mean, where how what's the over under on how far we are from a, a world like Terminator coming about? Well, uh, how about her? Her? How about All her? Right, let's, 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 go. let's let's try. That her. is your favorite. Go with. Well, it. I'll take I'll take her as a I'll take her for five hundred, Alex. Um, I think I'm a lot more optimistic than than my panelist. Uh, Five six years. Hmm. That's I think I think in the in the twenty twenties, um, we won't recognize the things we currently carry, except as museum pieces, 
or some throwback, you know, Civil War reenactment level uh, version of technology. It's not going to be the way we think it is, and it will happen very, very much more rapidly than we think it's going to. We thought Pokemon Go was fast. Yeah, you thought that upswing was fast. <laughs> oh, my God, can you imagine? So well, That's what well, I think. Well, thanks for being in the hot seat. A round of applause for Keith. All right. You, you can stay there and that, or move over. Everyone else, right. come back up, Barry, and you get your drink. Everyone take your seat. We're going to shift to the phase two, which is our round table. Um, uh, this is a chance for me to ask some questions of all three of you while we're here. You might want to take that mic out there, Keith, and we're going to do a little microphone swap in here and back and forth. You're my, mic my microphone buddy, okay, Dan and Barry and Keith can swap it. Um, all right, so now we've heard the over-unders and you've got to hear each other. Um, the, the question that I'll throw out to you guys as, as a group is um, what will be the most uh, – what will be the first – thing that where you see the combination of AI and robotics uh, where, where do you think it's going to really have that uptake and the, the convergence the fastest um, I don't have too much to say on it on the, except for the fact that I think that may already exist um, I'm trying That's right. yeah. do I need to talk closer or okay Sorry. Um, so I, I think that that probably already exists. Um, I'm not sure in what form. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but maybe you guys can. I don't know. <laughs> I'll take a shot at it. Okay. You know what's really interesting? I, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated by auto steer on a Tesla. And I'm also fascinated by all the hysteria about auto steer on a Tesla. When was the last time you were hysterical about a plane, which is generally auto steered damn near all the way? Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't get the, I don't get the mania around it. So I think that some, I, I'm with you. I think, I think the examples are already present and among us. And the, but we don't, are, we're not seeing, this is what's sort of kind of cool. We're not seeing this technological evolution occurring under our noses the fridge can show me what's inside of it well that's cool but to what end you know I now I've got to remember to get something or I can spy on it somehow uh, but what I think is gonna be more cool is when there's nobody behind the wheel and I send my car to pick up my kid at daycare or in the middle of the night the car just tr trundles off to get me more beer Right, and it just pulls up, and and the beer fairies put the beer in the back, and the car comes back home. I don't think we're that far away from that. Um, I was gonna say that's, I'm on the same page. Um, we have these new things like the auto drive and things like that, and my wife gets really excited about those things. But when I hear about them and and we talk about them, I'm like, yeah, that's not really that impressive. I mean, it, it's neat, but what I want to see is that true fully automated process and and I think while those things are AI in general already combined with um, robotics uh, what I want to see is the full automation and integration into a very useful daily thing that we can use and I think that may be what you were trying to get to or so uh, I'll cheat a little bit. So if we talk about robotics as just hardware and then uh, AI as intelligence, I think one of the more interesting integrations that already exists that's cheating again, but uh, Nest, right? So Nest is controlling your house to a very small degree based upon things that it learns from observing your movements. Um, and then just to echo what they said, um, kind of UAVs and cars, we know they already have these algorithms. Um, I don't think they're like using them to the uh, extent that they can, and I think it'll be really interesting to see. Is that because our 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 monkey minds are really afraid of it? I think it's more like what's the interesting problem we can solve with it. Like I don't think they've found like how can we help people. Like what task can we predict that's going to benefit individuals, right? Um, so you know, one of the interesting things that. Um, could happen is that you know my driverless car picks me up and always takes a different route than I tell it to because it's learned traffic patterns but that's sort of cheating because Google's already figured that out and I can more or less do that on my own um, but I think there's going to be th 
things that involve massive amounts of computation um, that the Tesla can already do. And the real question is kind of, uh, you know, uh, Keith said this, like, how do you formulate the problem, right? How do I pull back? How do I pull the strings so that I know I'm solving the right problem to kind of add value uh, to the product? So what, what do you guys have questions for each other? And uh, how would you challenge each other in terms of what you got? I wanted to jump in when you guys were talking earlier. Um, just the whole theme of uh, being worried about technology, and and you know, you mentioned uh, the the dumb human being afraid of uh, the unknown robot. Um, I I've done some res some research on you know how our minds are already changing <clears throat> both in a actual physical and neurological uh, manner and in our behaviors, our attention spans, things like that. <clears throat> um, I wanted to just hear what you guys had to say in, in more detail, I guess, on those things. Uh, I personally, you know, I love technology, but at the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, at the same time, I... Uh, so I've come up with a policy at home, no cell phones in the bedroom. Um, you know, when I go to bed, there's no electronics in the bedroom except for small alarm clock. Uh, things like that where you have to have this disengagement, I think, nowadays it's important uh, for perhaps mental health and things like that. Now, I don't know if it's bad or good, what what's really happening to us right now but um what what do you guys think <laughs> so when we were foragers you know uh, 20,000 years ago before farming our brains were bigger we had to worry about a lot I mean, we, we had to react and do things and then when when farming became sort of the thing and cities and ownership came up around farming, you know, our brains got a little smaller because we could offload some of this action to more distributed, you know, you, you lived in different sizes of things. And so now, and then and you move into an industrial age and we live in cities and then now you kind of think, okay, well, what's the, what's the, the age uh, of the machine say if the, if the rate of coming together follows the same sort of a, not, more than just a doubling or a squaring of density. The, we are, I already have more devices than there are people at my house that are, uh, you know, nests and my car talks to my house when I'm close by and make sure the garage door is going to open when I pull in the driveway and when I drive away it, it knows to lock everything down if I didn't do all that. Uh, and it does those things mostly because I'm a hacker and got bored and just tried to say, okay, how can I stitch this crap together? But when we get kind of out of the, the hackery or the stitchery of this thing and the fascination with it, and it becomes just like fabric to us, then the question I would have is, you know, what do you pursue? I, I think the issue is we're able to do a lot more technologically than we are doing and we're hiding behind this notion of finding a problem to solve when it's really a problem of trust. Do we want to entrust it to do a thing? Now, if you had somebody, you might say, well, I trust you to do it because you're like me and you probably act like me and you have the same sort of maybe moral character as me. But we don't know about these machines. So we wouldn't send a dog to go fetch the beer. Well, I might. But um, who knows? I think it's a trust issue. Less, less than a state-of-the-art or state-of-the-practice issue, per se. I think we, we couch it or we don't deliver it in a startup mode because we have to have a problem to solve and, and the economies of doing that. But I think our ability to, to uh, implement some of these things might be a little bit closer than everybody suspects. Yeah, I guess to build on that, I guess maybe we're afraid of what we might find, right? Uh, so it might tell us something that we don't like. Uh, it might uh, solve problems we can't solve, right? There's an ego there. Um, I don't particularly like the fact that Watson's a hell of a lot smarter than me, right? Uh, um, 
That's a good question. I mean, so you can certainly recall facts a lot faster than I can. Um, it can make abstract connections really well, right? I mean, I've never kind of thought against it, but it, it can make abstract connections, right? Um, I guess the question is that just because of computational power, right? Or is that actually that the algorithms that it runs are somehow better than the algorithms that I run, right? Right. On Jeopardy, I think we just have to, I think we just have to concede to Watson on the Jeopardy front, perhaps. But think about all the things that that are hard. I mean, the hard problems, like well, the. Well, you have to think of the hard problems, right? Yeah. That's the issue. Is no one gives you the hard problem. Like the problems that are worth solving, a lot of times have to be found. Um, okay. Some of them have existed for a really, really long time, but. But you know, some uh, so sometimes when you build a technology, you want to show it off, and to some degree. Uh, a Watson on a Jeopardy is kind of just showing off, right? Right, and to uh, maybe a lesser extent, uh, an Autosteer and a Tesla is just kind of showing off, right? A little, because I know you know you would brag about it if you had it. I would, I would, I would put everybody beside me and do it. But um, you know, your refrigerator is pretty cool. And if you didn't have it, you'd be pissed. And and air conditioning's really cool, both ways. And if you didn't have that, you would try to get that, perhaps. I, I, the movie you didn't mention was Wally. I don't know. What do you guys think about Wally as sort of a as a, a a next? I feel like it feels like we're headed that way, but I don't think I don't think we're far enough along. Right, right. Um, yeah. And I, maybe that's what people are afraid of, right? Maybe that's why we don't. <coughs> right. Maybe that's why we don't unleash AI to its full potential. The uh, sludge. Right. Uh, uh, no, I don't. I don't have too much on that. I, I, I'll stick with what I said before. I think that kind of. Well, I'm not recalling Wally too well right now. I did see the movie, but. Um, I think that full robotic animated kind of life form type thing, uh, still a good 100 to 200 years, I, I, I think. I, I really don't know, though. <clears throat> I mean, things, the thing is is that things like that can come up out of nowhere um, very suddenly. And like, uh, like you said, you know, things will happen much more quickly than we expect. Um, that could always happen you know, uh, at any time really. And you're never ready for it, but it just kind of happens. So, so consider this, you know, we got advances in, in, uh, in AI and computational power out the wazoo, uh, maybe more, more wazoo's being built to have computational power coming out of it, you know, on and on and on. What would you do if you could replicate yourself? If, if you could put yourself into a, a machine or a phone or whatever you can envision, what would you want it to do? Because if it's like a per, like it could remember everything you remembered, it would respond every way you respond. So but it has to go part, all the way. Which and, part of us we would clone? Yeah, or, or the whole thing. Let's yeah. just suppose you have to the get the whole thing. thing. And you're like, you can't, you can't have like partial Scott. Okay, the you got all Scott. But what would I ask myself to do? That, yeah, what, that, what would yeah. you do? Right. But what do you guys think? Well, I've always wanted a left-handed me to play doubles with. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'd like... J that was a joke, obviously, right? Um, although I really did always want a left-handed twin. Um, but I think it's, I think it's a really hard question, right? Like if you could replicate yourself, but it's a better version of you, is that what you're asking? Right. My, my question is, can I, can I kill my other self if need be? I, yeah, okay. Uh, I don't think, I, I don't get, think I, I would like that. Trouble. I don't know. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's a... Suppose what happens then, like, let's don't, let's don't stop at one. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it 10 times. Now I'm going to make 1,000 copies of me. And they're going to go do a bunch of things. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit on my ass no. and, and collect the proceeds from all the, the Keith farm, right? <laughs> Whatever the hell that looks like. And, I can, and, and I'll, do, I'll go one further. Let's suppose that some of them, because of you know, some expense or whatever you earn, suppose they can operate at a speed that's different than you. They can learn and experience life at a different rate and, and think through things faster. Now you've got a bunch of you that's at different sort of pacings and experience levels out into the world. Now what's that going to look like? I have no idea. Um, I, well, let me ask you this. Oh, yeah. it, will it be networked? Will they learn from each other? Or they, they, the only thing only okay, I got you. Mm-hmm. Only, only, only networking is if in regular communication. Right. So it's just, right. it's just more people, yeah. essentially. Yeah, so just more people like you, but they're, but they're you. If they react the way I do, and I know how they're feeling, um, I mean, I, I, I personally wouldn't be able to, like you said, just sit on my ass and let them go do things. Totally. Um, uh, I really would just like them to help me do what I'm doing. I think that's how I would use them. So you would I, like them to be kind of more of like feeding into you? Kind of a yeah, that that's my initial reaction. You know, once maybe I find that, you know, I maybe because of that cooperation, I finish all the things that I want to do in life, we'll say, uh, really early. And it takes a few hours. Done. Yeah, yeah, you know. So then, I don't know. Um, haven't really thought about that. I guess I'll just go find more problems to solve. <laughs> this is this is good. This is this is exactly the the round table sparking off. Now I want to widen the network a little bit farther than this and invite the the audience that we have here. If you have anybody got like a question you want to jump in or even an answer, to this come up here, say it into the microphone. Obviously, as you guys figured out, our microphones don't have amplification. It's really just an acoustic an acoustic event. And then uh, we're just recording this for the podcast. So, Eric. Hey. So, for Barry, since you're working on automating labor and everything, um, my question is, so once we get to a point where we can automate most labor or most jobs that involve labor, say, like truck drivers or you know, factory workers, things like that, what should we expect people to do that are now suddenly you know, out of a job or... Or is there any consideration to go into that? Or are we just going to wait and see once it happens and then we try to solve that problem? Um, that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, that's to your point, right? We work we work in that realm, and uh, it's certainly a question I think about frequently. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know that I have a good answer, right? So um, one thing is that, you know, at least in the relatively near future, right, robots are not going to be able to maintain themselves, right? So we always think of it as we're creating higher quality jobs. Right, so you're you're working in the tech field now, right? You need to know how to keep up code, how to keep up machinery, um, and how to you know network machines, how to how to deal with cloud-based systems. Um, so we're creating jobs that have a lot of value. Uh, not necessarily that the initial jobs didn't have value, right? But um, basically, you're developing skill sets that aren't necessarily niche, right? Um, sewing, you can really only sew. Right, if that's your main skill set, that's that's what you're going to be doing. And you even see it where like you know the the carpet industry and flooring industries in North Georgia. Um, and you have a lot of military that still exists in Alabama. Uh, and any denim that exists is still kind of in the Los Angeles area. And those people are niche sewers, right? I mean, that's what they sew. That's the material they sew. Um, whereas if you're a, a robotics operator, um, you can ro- operate robots, right? Um, and that probably um, filters you pretty well for either um, automated trucking or automated sewing. Um, or automated bottling, whatever the case may be, you're learning skill sets that are really going to help you throughout. Um, now, in 100 years, we may reach the point where um, robots can kind of maintain themselves, right? So you have a robot that maintains a robot. Um, and then suddenly that, that becomes a more difficult question, right? Uh, but for now, I think we're okay. So. Other questions? Come on up. You can just say your name and, and then ask you a question. Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Charu, and I'm an undergraduate researcher at IBRIM. And one of the problems that we like to tackle is about technology transition. So like you guys were saying earlier, um, a lot of people have fear about what the future holds in robotics. So um, what is a good way to ease people into it? And for example, 
when television first came out, there was all these like Ra Ray Bradbury novels, and even with recent um, developments in VR, there have been fears about people just staying in virtual reality forever. So how can we ease that fear and actually make it a reality? Stumper. <laughs> I, um, so I did a lot of, like I said, research on the effects of technology and how uh, people's behavior in general is changing uh, nowadays. In the last, really, most of the research is uh, past 10, 15 years. Um, and the issue is that I think we still need a lot of research on those effects. Um, the It has begun, like I said, but it's still in, a, in its infancy. Um, and we don't really know uh, what these things are really, how they're changing us. Um, and I think we need to know more about that first before we can really tell people what's happening um, or come up with ways to uh, calm people down if they do come up with these kind of worries. Um, I... Uh, I think that's all I've got on that, uh, but but just more research, yeah. I think I think my take on this is, um, to engender trust, you've got to somehow, for the person to show that it's useful to them in some regard, and I think that's why in AI we often talk about the utility function of this or that. But the problem that that begets is just the whole idea that something that you make or some artifact that you could design should have a utility at all. And this gets back to making something to some end because there's some economic reason to make it. Think about just the, the production of art for the sake of art or music for the sake of music. I wonder if the next wave of software is software for the sake of software or robots for the sake of robots. It's not so much a, a human use or utility so much as it is just a an existence proof that something's possible or probable I, I think you do have that already software at least with software for the sake of software, software. I, I did too I mean, that's that's what I'm saying design. yeah I mean that that makes a lot of sense and uh, bringing up the the trust uh, issue again I think uh, that really plays into a lot on uh, social paradigms uh, at the moment, just, you know, wherever that may be, if you just look at Atlanta or the entire United States or wherever in the world it is, you have to look at how people are accepting technology, um, what, what makes that happen and what makes it happen in whatever way it does happen. Like, like you said, with, uh, Pokemon Go, yeah. that massive adoption within a week of release, you know, um, right. And I think that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's the scary thing. And, and that happens uh, actually with Pokemon Go, there's the whole thing the the, Within three days of it coming out, there was already a, a malicious version of it with spyware and things like that out on the market. Well, and malicious was like uh, to, to go and do, use Pokemon Go at Arlington, a cemetery. That's probably a no. <laughs> uh, on the other side, there might be yeah. some fascinating things to go collect in Arlington Cemetery. Who the hell knows? Yeah. And so what would be the boundaries wow. of, of technology? Yeah. Right? Who, would, who, who's, who is to set these for us? Um, I think it's I think it's getting people involved, right? So kind of what we said, software for software's sake. Um, you know, people who are afraid of technology don't have a very good understanding, typically, of how it works. Um, so you look at sites like SparkFun or Adafruit, um, where they're really trying to get kids and young adults and even old adults um, involved in building robotics. Um, you look at, they have a lot of, wouldn't call them necessarily robots, but technology for technology's sake, where they're automating uh, Halloween costumes or your um, you know, Christmas tree or whatever the case may be. Um, they're really trying to get people involved in soldering and you know, wrenching on physical devices uh, and helping them understand how they work. And so if you combine that with learning how code works, 
um, and having a better intrinsic understanding of like, you know, what's in that uh, virtual reality device or what does the inside of my cell phone look like? Um, I think you're going to, you're going to trust it more if you understand it. Yeah. I, I think of, you know, it, the greatest advancements in, in science, the greatest advancements in religion and comes on, on, on the death of somebody. Right. So part of the fact that people get so stuck on the way they are and there's a fear behind it. And so the, 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 the opposite of that is the idea of if you're brand new, you're young and you're, you're not, you don't have a frame of reference, you know, this device called an iPhone is, that's just technology so easy. Right, it's so simple. I look, Grandma can use this thing. It's that easy, and but that's that's not having that long-term uh, history and, and awareness of you know the past. And I think part of this is it is engendering trust and also having the next crop of people who are coming in who don't have their their you know their their biases and and fears that are they're holding them back from that point. Um, I, I think we can continue uh, offline here with the conversation with our audience here. Um, I, I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight for the Humday Exchange and round of applause for you. I want to thank our guests, uh, Barry Clark and Dan McCarley and Keith McGregor. Thank you very much for being there and round of applause for them as well. And, and definitely I want to thank our partners, ATDC, uh, Scheller College of Business and AT&T Foundry. Um, you want to learn more about what we do, um, we being Sandbox, uh, you can go to sandboxatl.com. You can see bookthegarage.com and uh, check out new stories at techsquareatl.com. Uh, you want to come here and be in the audience and ask a question? Uh, we are at the Hump Day Exchange every second Wednesday of the month from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the garage, which is the home of Sandbox ATL. So thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Enjoy the rest of the pizza and beer and ice cream that we have for you.